As Sam mentioned, my family and I spent some time in China. We originally went to go for um, two years uh, and came back after 11. And that was a very common story <laughs> over there. Ah, oh, how long were you coming for? Six months. How long have you been here? Twelve years. Um, and a lot of people, they say, what did you learn when you are in China? And I'd say, blessed are those who are persecuted. And they go, oh, look at the time. <laughs> but today, this is a message straight from my heart to yours. While I'm preaching this to you, I'm thinking of beautiful faces, wonderful faces, and not just in China, all around the world and even in New Zealand. But we're going to start our journey today in Matthew 5, looking at the Beatitudes. So Matthew 5, 10 to 13. I've got lots of stories to tell today, but the countdown clock may cut some of those off. So if I don't have time for those, you can come talk to me afterwards. Yeah, make sure you've got at least three hours. <laughs> That's just for the introduction. All right, starting off in verse 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Carrying on into verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? All you chemistry people, be quiet. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now you may be wondering why I went onwards into the verses about being salt and light, or you may know exactly where I'm going with that, so please lock the doors. <laughs> no, we don't do that. No spoilers, but it's coming. So we're blessed when we're persecuted. <laughs> Just pause for a minute here so I can see how you're doing. Am I looking panicked yet? <laughs> You might already know that when they refer, refer to blessed are, the original translation in Greek can read this way. There is wonderful news for. Okay, so the blessed are, there is wonderful news for. But if we define persecuted in its original Greek context, it can bring in the connotation of being hunted like a wild animal, to be pursued, to be oppressed, to be driven away. That doesn't sound like great news, does it? No. <laughs> Come on, let's be honest here. Does that sound like great news to you? No. no. 
But if we think about it for a bit, and this is what I learned, if we think about it for a bit, think about the story of Stephen. Stephen was a, a disciple of Jesus. He was being stoned to death for what he believed. And, and like when they stoned people, they didn't just pick up a little pebble and go, eh, eh. All right? They'd pick up huge rocks and they'd run at them. Smack. And there's Stephen, and he's fallen to his knees, and he looks up, and he sees heaven. And he echoes what Jesus said, and he says, forgive them. And he's looking up at heaven, being persecuted, being stoned. Now, I've got to be careful because my kids laugh whenever I say being stoned. You know what I mean. Being stoned. But you see, someone else was there that day. His name was Saul. He looked after all the coats of the people that were stoning Stephen to death. And he watched as Stephen got a glimpse of heaven before he died. He saw it in his face. The Bible doesn't record all that Saul was thinking at the time, but I'm certain that Stephen's acceptance of his fate and the joy at leaving earth to go to heaven would have had Saul thinking. Either this man is stark raving mad, or he has something that I want for myself. Something powerful. Something given him by Jesus. You see, if you have something worth dying for, you have something worth living for. And if you have something worth living for, then you have something worth dying for. And that's what I was saying when I prayed before. Some of us feel there's no purpose in our life, but with Jesus there is purpose. There's purpose that we are going to one day be in heaven with him and we want to take as many people there as we can. You see, then the Bible records that Saul had an encounter with Jesus and became Paul, a mighty servant of God. And I'm certain that watching Stephen's reaction to his impending death by stoning in some way prepared Paul for that meeting with Jesus. Now, I've heard many times of people in China being persecuted and winning their captors to Christ simply by their reaction to being persecuted. Their childlike faith and love for their persecutors convinces those very people hurting them that they need to listen carefully to what these people believe. It's weird. They're used to being sworn at. They're used to people cowering in fear. And when a Christian sits there, looks them in the face and says, Jesus loves you as they're being beaten, it rocks them. By the way, I'm not advocating that you go out and get beaten, okay? We're talking about the purpose of this right now. Please don't do that. I don't want that on my conscience. See, first these captors see it as a weakness, but then it eats at them as the Holy Spirit does his work. And finally, they figure it out and they accept it as a strength of faith and they want that because they've got no purpose. It leads them to wanting a relationship with Jesus. The same Jesus who was persecuted on the cross and taught us to look our persecutor in the eye and say, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. So yes, <laughs> Believe it or not, it's good news when we are persecuted. It brings a good result. 
Let's look at the relevance of this passage today in a little more detail. Let's have a look at the global outlook first. Is there any less persecution now in the world? Well, that depends on your definition of persecution. But I think there is just as much now as there has ever been, perhaps more, if you count some of the new and creative ways people can harm others in today's society. The stress, the persecution, it's alive and well out there. But let's think about a second reason. A second reason why this is important and a second reason for saying that this what we're talking about today about persecution is relevant today is 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We'll say that again. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be, will be. Okay, I'm looking at your faces now. There are a few worried faces out there now. Yeah, that's all right. It ends well. <laughs> you can also look at Acts 14.22, if you want to look into that. John 15.20. Matthew 10.25. If I'm going too fast, there's notes out there. You can grab those. Now, this is a very broad statement, but it comes from Paul's intimate knowledge. So here, this is Paul again. That the things of this world and the things of God absolutely cannot live together in harmony. The things of this world and the things of God cannot live together in harmony. And all who try to make it so have failed. The sinful, fallen nature of humankind cannot coexist with the new creation in Christ. They're opposites. And if you're a new creation, you're going to shine the light that exposes sin in others and be salt in the world that rubs into the wounds of sin and makes them sting. People aren't going to like that. Sooner or later, a deeply God-centered Christian will be mistreated for the things they believe or the life they live. Sooner or later, if you are deeply God-centered, you will be mistreated for the things that you believe or the life they live. If you're like me, you'll be praying that it doesn't go as far as stoning. You know, a few, a few choice words in my ear, I can cope with that. Stoning, I'm not quite so happy about that one. So these words of Jesus about persecution are relevant for today, not only because millions of Christians in our world are being persecuted for their faith every day, but also because, to one degree or another, all of us who are dead set about putting God first in our work and home and school and leisure will bump into some form of opposition sooner or later. It's going to happen. You see, none of us knows when our freedoms may be stripped away or when we may be called by God to go to a dangerous place or take a stand here that causes others to dislike us. I work at Richmond View School. We wonder how long it will be before some aspects of our curriculum are labelled hate speech. We wonder how long it will be and what will we do when that happens. I have to admit, I had a little pity party when I came back from China and then I saw this coming on the horizon and thought, oh, come on, <laughs> 11 years over there, haven't I done my bit? 
Ooh, that's a very bad attitude, by the way. I'm glad I'm over that one now. Thank you, wife. Um, <laughs> my lovely wife, Jackie, there. She, um, she can tell you a lot about me, but I hope she doesn't. Um, so, this is important. What I've said up till now is important because not all persecuted people are blessed. All right? Not all persecuted people are blessed. Only those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what it says. There's a proviso for righteousness' sake. If you're being persecuted for other reasons, there's no blessing in that at all. So let's look at righteousness in the structure of the Beatitudes. That's why I read the whole section out. Because in the Beatitudes, there's two groups of four. And each group ends with a reference to righteousness. The first group ends with verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the second group ends with verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The three Beatitudes that lead to hunger for righteousness are actually descriptions of a kind of holy emptiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn over their needy condition, and the meek who hand their cause over to God. It's natural that these three descriptions of emptiness and need should be followed by a description of hunger, a hunger for righteousness. Because if you don't have something, you hunger for it. He said, trying not to think of the chocolate behind him. <laughs> then the next three Beatitudes are descriptions, not of emptiness, but of fullness. The hunger is beginning to be satisfied by an overflowing mercy, a pure heart, and the power to make peace. So the righteousness longed for in verse 6 is being given in the form of mercy, purity, and peacemaking. And if you are full of mercy, purity, and peacemaking, the result is persecution for this very righteousness gained because you shine a light on everything out there that people are doing which is wrong. And people don't like it. Another way to define the righteousness of verse 10 is to look at its parallel in verse 11. In verse 10, the persecution is on account of righteousness. But in verse 11, it is on account of Jesus. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's Jesus talking. So on my account, Jesus, and on account of righteousness, they mesh together. They probably mean the same thing. So what we learn from this is that true righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, always involves a relationship with Jesus. True righteousness is not done for its own sake. It's not, I'm better than you. True righteousness is done for Jesus' sake to get people into the kingdom of God and to be close to Jesus in your own personal relationship. The mercy and the purity and the peacemaking of a disciple of Jesus comes from Jesus. Because he said in John 15.5, without me you can do nothing. And it's done for the honour of Jesus. It's this attachment to Jesus 
that gives our righteousness a distinct character and puts us in that position of being looked at in that way. So why is righteousness persecuted? It raises a question. If that's what righteousness means, being merciful and pure and peaceable by relying on Jesus and living for his glory, why would anybody persecute that? It doesn't seem very offensive, does it? Well, the answer is found in Luke 16, 14 to 15. Jesus has just said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and chocolate. I mean money. You cannot serve God and money. Then comes the persecution, the mockery. Verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this and they scoffed at him. So there's the persecution and part of its explanation. They were lovers of money and what he was doing was showing that up. Jesus' attitude towards money is an attack on their love of money. Then comes the rest of the explanation of their mockery. Verse 15, but he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. So here is the root of persecution with two shafts. One shaft is the love of something evil or untrue, and the other shaft is the need to justify that love, to say it's okay, everybody's doing it. That's the root cause of persecution. You love something that Jesus doesn't want you to love, and you come up with a reason why it's okay. And then, then there's trouble. Jesus comes on the scene with a way of life and a message that states that the love of money is treason against God. You can't serve two masters. It's important to note that he wasn't being antagonistic. He wasn't all up in their face. It came naturally as part of his purity. He spoke the truth in love. He wasn't picking up a fight. Because if you bring down persecution on yourself by being plain nasty, you won't be blessed for that. It isn't in the spirit of what Jesus did on the cross. The Pharisees' love of money led them to justify themselves and put Jesus down. Shut up, Jesus. We don't want to hear this. And as you know, it was somebody with a love of money that actually betrayed him in the end. This is standard operating procedure for self-justification, and this is the root of all persecution. You see something, you don't like it, you want to shoot it down because it means that you need to change something in your life. We don't like that. I've been there. And had it pointed out to me so that I could actually repent and come back to God. Thank you, wife. Um, a life devoted to righteousness will be persecuted. If you stand for sexual purity, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. If you stand for soberness, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evils of pride. If you are on time and honest in your dealings, you will lay open the inferior nature of laziness and neglect. If you speak with love, you will show the meanness in others. And if you are spiritually minded, 
you will expose the worldly mindfulness of those around you. But there's two responses to a righteous life. And this is where we get to the blessed part. When you desire to be godly, there are two possible responses people can have. And they're described in John 3, John 3, 20 to 21. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So there, that's one possible response right there. Hating the light and not accepting it and trying to put it out. But he who does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God. So that's the other possible response. Doing the truth and coming to it and freely admitting that all good in us is accomplished by God. So you are trying to either put out the light or come to the light. So the two options are persecution or conversion. And you can see these options in Matthew 5, 10 and 16. Let your light shine. But what about all the unbelievers, or as I like to call them, pre-Christians, in my life who are neither converted nor persecuting? who are just civil or even polite? Well, there's at least two possible explanations. <laughs> One is that your light is under a bushel. You're keeping the stumbling block of the cross hidden. See that in Galatians 5 and 6? You are not letting your distinctive values show. Big temptation for me when I was in China. Big temptation. The other is that you're letting them show and the people around you are moving toward one or the other of these two choices, persecution or conversion. They're either getting ticked off with you or they're becoming closer to Jesus. All right. But this is a process and it's not necessarily immediate. Sometimes it's immediate. Frequently when I'm persecuted for saying I'm a Christian, I'll turn around and say, who hurt you? Because if it's immediate, generally there's something down that track. Many people are torn inside themselves, partly hating the claims of Christianity and partly being attracted by them because Jesus' love is very attractive. So we should all examine ourselves to see if we're playing a kind of cowardly Christian. If ever I'm being a cowardly Christian, I ask that God would reveal it to me and generally my wife will speak. (laughs) She's a gift, people. She's a gift. And you, those of you who know her know she is. And if we, are, if we are playing a cowardly Christian, we should repent and resolve to be more open in the expression of who we really are. What did you do on the weekend? Went to church. <laughs> you might want to ease into a bit. Oh, I had a great day. Sat, I was in the garden. Sunday I went to church. Oh, what are you doing next weekend? <laughs> this point, backpedal. Yeah. We shouldn't compromise what the Bible clearly tells us. But that's another sermon series in itself. But also, we must not assume that because there is no persecution right now and no conversion right now, that it's our fault. It may be that the birth of a new Christian is imminent or it may be that the storm is about to break. And as I said at the beginning, how you react to the storm, God can use that. Either way, let's move on now to how being persecuted is good news. Blessed are you when people insult you, 
persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil against you because of me. That's Jesus. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Now this is pretty scary. (laughs) A command to be glad when we are hated and mocked and tortured and possibly killed. And make no mistake about it, Jesus does have death in view here because that's what they did to the prophets. You see that in Matthew, Kings 18, 1 Kings, sorry, Nehemiah 9, Jeremiah 26, it's all through. This is what they would do to the disciples. They were persecuted unto death. So he says in Matthew 24, 9, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Wow, good news, right? You're allowed to giggle a little bit, okay, because it's not. So serious. Yeah, it's serious. I appreciate that. Now, this is either the command of someone who has absolutely no feeling or the command of someone who's been through it all, which Jesus did, and knows that in the end, it's going to be worth it. This is Jesus speaking. We can't sugarcoat it and we can't ignore it. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. There it is. If you have something worth living for, you have something worth dying for, or at least suffering for. If you have something worth dying for, then you have something worth living for. The reward of heaven and the reward of bringing other people into heaven, it's worth it. And that's what I saw in China again and again and again. Had a guy come back, beaten, and he said, Praise God, I led my captor to Jesus. He wasn't even talking about the fact that he was beaten. He was talking about the fact that he'd led the guard to Jesus. All right? Yeah, that was a hard day. Sitting there thinking, would I come back? I come back saying, Band-Aid, please, Band-Aid. I'm working on it. So suffering's relationship to reward in heaven raises a question. In order to rejoice and be glad in the suffering of persecution, should you also believe that the suffering itself increases your reward in heaven? Now, this is a really contentious point, so I'm going to throw it out there, and I'm not going to answer it because I'm too afraid. <laughs> All right? I've, I've heard both points, so I'm going to throw it out there, and we're going to let the really big guns figure this out. It's a very contentious point, but if the same reward in heaven could be obtained without suffering, wouldn't we say that suffering is useless? <laughs> it isn't if it gets someone else into heaven. Why embrace it with joy? What gave Roland Taylor and Bishop Ridley and John Bradford the impulse to kiss the stakes that they were burned on? What moved Obadiah Holmes after 90 lashes turned his back to jelly for Jesus to say to the magistrates, you have struck me with roses? Why did Thomas Hardcastle say that persecution is a precious season of grace? Why do people I know in China almost line up to be persecuted? Some do it for the wrong reason too, by the way. I'll talk about that later. Matthew 19.29 And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, Jesus' name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So there's the, there's the bit. And eternal life? Extra? I don't know for sure. But here's what I think the reward will be over and above walking into heaven through the grace of Jesus. Here's what I think the reward will be. Stephen will look Paul in the eye in heaven and know that his sacrifice was part of getting him there. 
I had a chance to work with Ray Comfort at one point, and something he said stuck with me. He was talking to a young man about Jesus, and he said, one day I'll be in heaven, and I want you to be there. And that, to me, that is it, right there. Words fail me. That's our reward, soul saved and the knowledge that it was through our sacrifice that God got them there. Jesus on the cross, Christian suffering, persecution, it's smiling at heaven, bringing others to saving grace. We need to keep our hearts on heaven because that's the reward. We need to desire the reward of heaven more than we desire the reward of the world. Matthew 6 says, store up treasures in heaven. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. We should endure persecution in the same gentle, humble way. He went so he could look people in the eye in heaven and know that he got them there. And every one of us will do that. We'll look them in the eye and say, thanks. We can share in that reward. So remember the prophets of old. Remember the martyrs. Turn often to Hebrews 11, 36 to 38, and read how by faith they suffered mocking and whipping and even chains and imprisonment. For me, I remember a guy I met who was beaten simply for tackling the Chinese government over its treatment of children with handicaps in the education system. He adopted many who had been abandoned by their parents. When I find myself feeling persecuted and my attitude is bad, I remember him and I repent. I put a smile on my face and try to be more like Jesus to win some for heaven. I fail often, but I keep trying. I keep reminding myself to be salt and light and to understand why some don't like it. Pray for them, try again and again. Revelation 2.10 Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And the amazing thing is, you can pass that on. Whatever you have to do to get your heart on heaven and off the world, do it. Otherwise, we'll not be able to obey the command of God. Rejoice and be glad in persecution, for great is your reward in heaven. And let us continue to say with Jim Elliot, another martyr of the faith, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If we have our hearts so much in heaven that we fear no one but rejoice in persecution, we will be the salt of the earth and we will be the light of the world. Our attitude to those who challenge what we believe will be used by God to bring them into the kingdom. And that's the reward right there.